the processors dictate the whole system, right? If you can't process, you know, meat animals, uh, you're in trouble. You, you, you either have to try to get them off of a weight gaining regime uh, in the short term to extend their live animal status before you can process them, or you have to destroy the animal. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. High D from DSM Firmanish can help your cattle get the vitamin D they need this winter. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Hi, welcome to the Beef Podcast. Happy to have you with us. I'm Brad White, one of the hosts. And as this podcast is brought to you, we'd like to have a variety of topics and guests that will be applicable to you and your business. If you ever have topic ideas, you can submit them online, either by following the Beef Podcast or sending an email. So we're happy today to have Dr. Randy Phoebus with us, who is a professor of food safety at Kansas State University's Food Science Institute and a member of the Animal Science and Industry Department. And he's going to share a lot of his interesting work with us. Good afternoon, Randy. Hello. How are you doing? Good. We're happy to have you with us. And, and we've got some great topics to get into today, but I may start just by having you give an introduction of yourself. Tell us a little bit about you. Okay, well, I've been at Kansas State University. I'm now in my 32nd year, so I'm a, a full-fledged academic by now, I guess, and uh, I've uh, always focused on food uh, microbiology, food safety, and uh, do a lot of research, not with just meat and poultry, but with virtually every food commodity, including pet foods. So if it's Salmonella, E. coli, or Listeria, I'm probably doing some research with it. Um, I am also a fellow, a research fellow at our K-State Biosecurity Research Institute, which uh, kind of gives us some uh, pretty unique opportunities to do large-scale, pretty nasty type research with agents that most organizations can't work with. Uh, we call them select agents. Uh, in addition to research, I uh, have a teaching appointment and, and uh, uh, teach food science uh, to undergrad and graduate students. So that's, uh, that's me in a nutshell. I, I hail from the wonderful state of Tennessee, uh, which is where I am today, experiencing uh, Christmas here with my family. Uh, but uh, I, I really enjoy my time at Kansas State University. Data shows most cattle don't get the vitamin D they need, especially in winter months. High D from DSM Firmanish can ensure your cattle get the recommended vitamin D level to support bone strength, help immunity, and improve performance. Visit dsm.com forward slash hy-d to learn more. That's excellent. And, and I think it's one of the things as we get into some of the different topics, you've got a variety of research interests. So food safety, but that covers a big spectrum. How did you, how did you get into food science? Well, it's a, that's a very interesting story that we probably don't have enough time to, to, to go into. Actually, my parents uh, owned grocery store my entire life. And so 
from the consumer side, I was somewhat exposed to meat cutting and, and uh, you know, uh, consumer goods my entire life. But then I went to the University of Tennessee uh, studying animal science and pre-vet and uh, finished my BS degree in animal science there. And uh, just by chance one day uh, in the adjoining building uh, in the men's bathroom, I ran into a really uh, key meat science uh, figure at K-State, Dr. James Riemann, who was a K-State grad, by the way. And uh, he talked me into going to graduate school uh, in food science. And uh, I kind of, once I was in food science, I kind of uh, took the pathway toward food microbiology and food safety, just because I, I have always been intrigued with public health and, and uh, you know, the, the, I guess the microscopic life and, and its contributions to spoilage and public health and animal health and that sort of thing. So it just kind of fit all the bills for me. So that's an that's a interesting story and, and we often, in retrospect, it's easy to sort some of the details out, but at the time, you don't realize some of those chance encounters and the role it plays in uh, your life as you go to the next step. I'm probably one of the few people that made a career decision in the men's bathroom, but I did. That's an honest story. <laughs> so the, moral, the moral of the story is always go to the bathroom. <laughs> you should do that at least once a day. Yeah, it was very, uh, very interesting for sure. But it was a good choice. Excellent. Very good choice. Uh, you, you mentioned public health, public safety. You've been doing some research lately, and one of the biggest public health issues we faced in the last several years was COVID. And I know you did some research related to COVID in the processing plants. Tell us a little bit about what was what were the objectives of that research and, and what did you learn? Well, if you think back to 2020 early, uh, we knew nothing about this uh, virus, basically, in, in any kind of setting, basically. And uh, everybody was pretty much in panic mode, including the government and the World Health Organization. And so there just wasn't much information that you could uh, really operate uh, society on or operate a business on. People were getting sick. And uh, so, you know, in the meat industry, uh, particularly here in Kansas, we took it really hard. Uh, you know, we, we had plants shut down for, you know, extended periods of time. We had people getting really sick and dying in those plants. Uh, our supply chains were a mess. Um, and, you know, including at the producer level, people didn't have places to go with their hogs and cattle. and. Uh, you know, when we shut down plants. And so it was just a real big mess. And, you know, at K-State, um, you're in the vet school, but uh, I'm in uh, the Department of Animal Science, Food Science, but we, I'm not a virologist by training. I'm a microbiologist, but uh, we have tremendous virologists in our K-State vet school. And uh, when USDA realized that they had to address COVID in the food industry, not just meat, but the food industry in total, they opened up a uh, basically an emergency grant uh, program, and uh, we were we gained one of the emergency grants. It was a million dollars for three years to try to figure out how uh, this virus persists in the meat processing environment, uh, how the things that the industry was trying to do to mitigate uh, mitigate that risk were working. And then trying to kind of give guidance to the government and to the processors on what 
was effective and what is not effective. And so we have now just barely finished uh, collecting data. We're doing all the report writing and things now, but you know, it's just like what you see in schools and in all aspects now. We know a lot more about COVID today than we did back in 2019, 2020. And probably some of the things that we tried to do didn't help. And who knows, maybe even increased your risk. So now, hopefully, as we've kind of uh, mitigated uh, the emergency factor of the, the COVID outbreak, uh, you know, cooler, more logical heads can prevail and we can get ready for whenever we have to face another threat like this. So as you went through the process, there's a couple of things that are interesting there. One is relative to the specifics of COVID, but two is we really realize the importance of those meat processing facilities at, as a part of the industry. Oh, yeah. Right? Sometimes they seem like, I mean, we know they're important, but boy, that has dramatically changed how we see flow, flow and supply chain management. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit about what you've learned through that process that might be helpful? Yeah, a couple of really important things, in my opinion. First is, uh, you know, the, the processors dictate the whole system, right? If you can't process, you know, meat animals, uh, you're in trouble. You, you, you either have to try to get them off of a weight gaining regime uh, in the short term to extend their live animal status before you can process them, or you have to destroy the animals because or or do some sort of you know byproduct rendering or something out of it it's really just devastating to producers and to processors and to consumers when when this sort of thing at the scale that covid brought about uh, rears its ugly head but but the other thing that's you know especially here in Kansas that's more immediate is that in the communities where these particularly the large uh, harvest slaughter facilities processing facilities they are such a big piece of that community in that region that if you've got people sick or if they can't go to work or if the plant shut down, then your whole you know economy, your whole way of life in those areas are uh, you know is really greatly altered, if not at a standstill. Uh, one of the things that we saw in the communities where the large packing plants were was they had about a ten time higher rate of COVID infections and deaths compared to places in the country that didn't have those production facilities, those processing facilities. So it, it was all, you know, a really complex interrelated thing. And when you, when you think about the population that's working in the plants, uh, you know, the cultural aspects of it, uh, you know, they're very family oriented. Oftentimes, uh, you know, this immigrate, immigrant workforce that lives in, you know, group uh, settings, large family settings. So, you know, if you're carpooling to the plant and things like that, there's a lot of opportunity, you know, close natured aspects that promote the spread of a respiratory virus. <laughs> and so, it, it, you know, that's part of what we tried to do is not only talk about the science of, uh, you know, how COVID uh, persists in the processing plant and, and where it persists and that sort of thing, but also kind of provide some guidance on uh, you know, separation of people, even when they're not in the meatpacking plants and things like that. So it had a lot of uh, aspects to it. And, you know, uh, Land Grant University, you always uh, focus a lot on outreach and extension. And 
So we, we partnered with the University of Georgia. Two of my former students are down there and they have a really rich history and extension uh, with the meat and poultry industry. So they helped a, a lot spread the word of what we're finding. And, and interesting that it sounds like what you're saying, if I'm paraphrasing is, it's not just if the virus is there, but it's the type and amount of exposures. And those can occur in the workplace, out of the workplace. Exactly. It's, it's an effect that is based on multiple factors, not just do we have a virus. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, we've come in this very short time, not we, not just our group, but uh, people all over the world have come to know a lot more about SARS-CoV-2 virus. And basically, uh, you know, the, the environment plays a huge uh factor in how stable the, the infectious nature of the virus is. Um, you know, if you think about all of the separation, you know, keeping uh, six feet separation, you, you remember the lines in Walmart and all that kind of stuff. Well, it turns out, you know, that maybe that's not adequate. You know, we're finding in some of the meat processing facilities that the virus can go about 30 feet <laughs> without much uh, negative uh, attrition. And so, you know, it really comes down to the humidity and the temperature of the environment that it's in, uh, the surfaces that are involved. You know, in the meat processing facilities, we've got a lot of stainless steel and a lot of nylon and plastic polytop type cutting surfaces and concrete and things like that. Well, we now know that the virus has quite a different uh, persistence on these different types of materials and especially based on temperature and humidity in the, in, in the room that we're talking about. And then greatly impacting that is air flows, you know, air currents and whatnot. So, you know, back when, when all of this started, we had a lot of things that we worried about. For instance, um, you know, you're in the veterinary side of things. We talk about fomites a lot, right? So surfaces where the virus could be toilet tops, uh, door handles, meat cutting knives and tables and stuff and their contribution. Well, it, you know, we, we worried about that a lot at the initiation of this and in schools and stuff like that too. But now it's very clear that the respiratory aspect, bioaerosols and, and you know, what you breathe in is where the real risk is. And so that's kind of where, you know, the industry has to focus now. And, and especially now with the industry, you know, there's a huge uh, percentage of vaccinated workers now compared to back then. And so it, it, the fire is out a bit. We don't want to completely say COVID is not an issue, but, uh, you know, we're in a much better position now than we were back in 2020 and 2021. Yeah. So three three years ago, difference in knowledge, difference in what was going on and, and how we were responding to it. I guess I'd be curious and, and maybe, and I'll say it this way, Moving away from COVID alone, what are what are maybe a couple lessons that you see learned in the meatpacking industry from that event that will be helpful next time we have a disruption in the supply chain? Oh man, I could I could go on and on about those sorts of things, but you know the first one that, that you know immediately comes to mind is we have some extremely intelligent people in our food processing industry. You know, back when I started in 1992, uh, working with the industry compared to what it is today, 
the level of scientific knowledge in these large processing facilities is off the charts, uh, probably stronger than what we have at the university in some cases. And so they make some really good risk-based decisions. But un unless you have you know, a means of collecting data, not just from your operations, but from the industry as a whole, and sharing, you know, what are you doing in your plant versus what the next uh, plant's doing, then you're going to be much slower to make progress. And I think, you know, even way before COVID, back when we started talking about controlling E. coli 0157 in the beef industry back in the uh, mid-1990s, uh, the industry came out and said, we are going to work together on this public health problem, which means we're going to share data, we're going to share technologies, it's not going to be proprietary. And, you know, some people are, are a little skeptical on, on industry and, and whatnot, it's so competitive, but uh, I have witnessed that they do that on the food safety effort. Now, if you've got a product development or something that they're going to make money on over the other, then yeah, that's competitive. But food safety is not competitive. Well, COVID, and you know, if the next thing we have to deal with is African swine fever or foot and mouth, whatever it is, the industry is going to come together and work with people like me and with themselves to address it as fast as it can be addressed. Yeah, that's a great take home because a lot of times at the university, part of the job is do the research and then part of the job is share the research in private companies it's do the research and don't share the research, right? In, in most, when it's not related to industry issues, when it's related to competitive advantages, yeah. and this is a different scenario. So one of, the, one of the things that you're saying is highlight that mechanism for sharing and deciding which goes into which area. Absolutely, and you know, the meat industry, when you start talking to the, the people who kind of uh, direct the food safety and operations management, they, when you're looking at the director and uh, vice president level people, it's not that big of an industry. <laughs> you know, I, I know most of the people, as a matter of fact. And, you know, the night uh, that we decided that we were going to write this grant to, uh, to USDA to, to pursue this COVID funding, the first thing that I did and probably the most important aspect of us getting this grant was I solicited a very high profile, powerful uh, industry guidance board who, you know, they were with us from writing the grant to right now putting out, uh, you know, information and, and determining what the data means. So they were true, a true partner. And it's not just the meat processors. You know, we brought in technology providers, sanitizer companies and air sampling companies and stuff that have much more expertise and better equipment than we have. And they were here suiting up and, and going to work with me in the morning, you know. So that's kind of where you make the fastest, most, you know, inspiring discoveries is when you pull these, these groups of people together to work as a team. Yeah, that's right. And and that's what makes it makes it fun. And I ask you about learnings for the meat processing industry. If we turn our gaze the other direction and say, okay, what did you learn from this on the meat processing side that you would pass along to producers in the supply chain? So yeah. if we're thinking on the beef side, even all the way back to the cow calf side, is there anything no. there that you would say, this is something to be aware of? 
Well, you know, if we are specifically talking about the COVID project, uh, you know, the, the production people had a lot of issues going on too, you know, milking parlors and, you know, uh, sale barns and, and all of those things. I mean, you, you really think about a respiratory, human respiratory disease, uh, especially one as infectious as coronavirus is, then you've got a lot to deal with. So it didn't really matter if we were in a school, a church, or a livestock barn, or a processing plant. When you start understanding bioaerosols, uh, when you think about uh, air currents and managing, you know, air turnover in closed spaces, when you, you know, the big controversy is, is mask. And, you know, I've got my own opinion that I'll leave unannounced today, but, uh, you know, you, you learn so much in all of these studies that can be applied across the board in a lot of cases. And, you know, in the meat industry, we uh, one of the first things that uh, they did in the processing side was put up plexiglass dividers between line workers because these people are two to three feet spaced and they stand there for eight hours a day or more side by side. So if you've got an infected worker, you're going to get a huge amount of exposure. Well, you know, I worked with the big companies like Tyson and, and National Beef and, and Cargill and these in this project to determine how effective are those dividers and uh, including lunch tables and stuff. Well, immediately you can apply that to libraries and schools and hospitals and Walmart checkout centers and everything else. And the results that we saw with some very interesting engineering studies, airflow and laser light uh, scattering and things that we did on this project, uh, you see a lot of things that kind of defy logic as far as w the way the air is moving and uh, thermal currents and things like that. So, you know, that was, I guess, the most exciting and, and I guess what I learned the most from this project is working with these engineers on things that I had never really put a lot of effort into professionally. But they became, you know, probably the foundation of the research that we were doing. It's controlling air since these air uh, droplets are in the air and move over great distances. So were the and, and maybe you don't have the data analyzed yet, but were the plexiglass dividers was that helpful? Not helpful? Um, probably not as helpful as you would think. But uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, if you're sitting at a cafeteria table, uh, people on one side and people on the other and you're trying to talk to each other across the table and you've got a plexiglass divider between you, a clear one, so you can see, the, see them, you know, you would think that that would kind of solve the problem of aerosols. But basically what we saw with some of these studies was that you kind of get a thermal current from uh, the aerosol. It starts kind of circulating like a smoke uh, screen and it goes up over it and then it kind of drifts its way right back into the face of the people on the other side. And so, you know, it, it doesn't take much control of air, as you know that's happening, to prevent it, you know, directional yeah. airflow. So you you got to know and characterize the problem before you can fix it is, is what you, that's you right. know, learn. Yeah. So interesting work there and, yeah. and not what you expected to do, because a lot of your background is on food safety. Yeah. So also human focus side, but... The food safety, and, and you mentioned before, you've done a fair bit with E. coli. You've done some other work. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about your 
food safety work? Yeah, uh, my uh, main areas of food safety work, I, I work in a lot of different areas and I consult and troubleshoot with the industry a lot, uh, both on food spoilage and food safety. But uh, the primary area that I have uh, concentrated my research program over the three decades is in two areas. The first one is uh, what we call process and technology validation. So I do these very large inoculated studies. So I, I may put uh, on a full side of beef, uh, I may put a million E. coli per square centimeter on that carcass. And then I run it through commercial grade type, uh, what we call interventions. It could be carcass washes, it could be, you know, uh, lighting of the pulse field light or whatever it is, but carcass level interventions that the industry is interested in and so I see how much I can kill in, in, in log cycles. So, you know, I'm, I'm looking at percentage kill. And then what I do in those inoculated studies, which happen mostly over there at the Biosecurity Research Institute that I mentioned, because we can do large scale commercial grade type studies. What I find out, then I send that information to the, the food processing companies for them to make decisions on which intervention fits into their process the best, which can they afford, which addresses in their hands. You know, there's not really one size fits all uh, in any plant with any technology. And especially when you consider economics, you know, you got rich companies and not so rich companies. But if they know that, um, you know, technology A versus technology D give you similar results and, you know, you can apply them without you know, negative impact on quality, then that gives the companies tools to make good decisions as companies. So that's kind of where I've, I guess, made a name for myself over the years is conducting these large intervention studies. And then I help the companies, even when they make that decision, uh, verify the operation of that equipment in their own hands and their own companies. Because what I do, you know, at K-State might turn out to be a little bit different result-wise as in their hands, or it might need to be fine-tuned. So I, that's kind of the way I work. The other big area that I, I've worked in all these years is in pathogen detection and, you know, how long pathogens survive and how well they attach to different meat or food surfaces or processing equipment surfaces, biofilms and things like that. And then the sanitation programs that uh, have to ha happen to, to handle that sort of thing. So I guess, you know, 90% of the work I do, Brad, would be considered applied research. But I work with a lot of fundamental scientists that are trying to figure out mechanisms and, you know, at that level. But I like to take, take that research and put it to use in big ways. Yeah, I think that, and Randy, that's, I think, a good way to describe how do I evaluate, does it work or not? And then that all fits into, as you described, a cost-benefit equation. Right? Oh, yeah. What are what potential costs, what goes through, what are the benefits, both system cost and costs of failure. So sim similar to anything else, you've got to know all the pieces of the puzzle, the accuracy of the system and everything else put together. You know, there, there are some things that uh, are kind of secondary uh, considerations, but they almost become primary considerations, particularly as we look at things today. And I'll give you a perfect example. You know, uh, in these large meat processing companies, even me medium and small ones, but especially large ones, 
we use a tremendous amount of water, both as carcass and subprimal washes. You know, we're, we're, it's almost like a car wash that we put all of these carcasses through. And we're applying lactic acid and parasitic acid and bromous acid and all these things as our primary antimicrobial uh, technology. Well, uh, you know, here in the Midwest, we, we're starting to realize how precious water is and trying to conserve that water. And so you've got all of the water reuse from those carcass washes. But better yet, you know, if we could develop technologies that are just as effective, but use, you know, a percentage, if not a great percentage less water, then that would give companies, you know, a really big economic incentive to, to use that technology. So I've been doing uh, some of the last work that I've done was comparing all of these different carcass washes. Some of them are high volume and some of them are low volume and giving them actual microbial kill numbers that they can make those decisions. And at the BRI, I've also got an electrostatic spray cabinet that you can, you know, I can cover a carcass with, you know, some of these really like fifth generation antimicrobials that are expensive. I can cover that carcass top to bottom, inside and out with five milliliters of that compound, whereas it might take a hundred gallons of hot water or lactic acid. So there's a lot of uh, innovation, and I think the future is going to be in that direction just because we are having to, you know, look at environmental sustainability so tight today. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th and I think that's pretty interesting to see how some of those things develop and evolve over time. Because mm -hmm. as, you, as you talked about through your career, what have, what have been some of the biggest innovations you've seen in food safety thus far? Because it's kind of been an arc. You mentioned we didn't do a lot of looking yeah. for E. coli in the 90s. No, well, there's been a lot of innovations, uh, both on the, the pathogen detection side and then on the pathogen control intervention side. So on the pathogen detection side, man, when, uh, when I first came to K-State in 1992, 1993 and 94 is when uh, the jack-in-the-box E. coli outbreak was really hitting hard in the Pacific North, uh, Northwest. And, uh, you know, we just barely discovered shigatoxigenic E. coli at that point and uh, didn't know hardly anything about it. And so uh, one of the first projects that I did uh, was working with Cargill and an equipment manufacturing uh, manufacturer called Frigascandia. And we developed the steam pasteurization process for beef carcasses. So that process was a total new innovation. And it was like a big cabinet that, you know, moving line carcasses passed through. And we had a, a patented way of applying steam inside and out to the full carcass because you got to do it in a manner that the steam condenses on the surface to become antimicrobial. If you don't have a little bit of a pressurization in that chamber, it won't condense. So to do that on a moving line was very difficult, but we were able to do it. And Cargill and Tyson uh, in particular uh, ended up fitting all of their plants during that era with these steam pasteurization systems. And at that time, they were over a million dollars per system that uh, Frigascandia installed. And, you know, that kind of led, uh, even if companies didn't install that system, it kind of forced them to put in other interventions and validate other interventions, like hot water would be an example, to show that they were almost as effective as steam pasteurization, or the government, you know, and, and the buyers wouldn't 
continue to buy from them. So the, the other thing on the detection side, the biggest invention has been polymerase chain reaction technology. And now we've talked about whole genome sequencing because now we can track contamination back to the live animal, to the region, to the drain uh, that the contaminants are in. Uh, you know, if you've got contaminated pro product on the market, it doesn't matter if it's meat or flour or whatever, we're going we're gonna to track you down, you know, it, it's going to come back to you. So companies are really adamant about knowing and getting rid of food safety issues now. Yeah, and I think that's an important part as you think about how regulations tie in but it's also the consumers, right? I mean, so it's not just regulations mm -hmm. that we're doing those, it's to protect those consumers. And I think that affects yeah. all of us. Even as we go back to the to the live animal, trying to figure out, and you've done some of that research, especially with the E. coli, yeah. looking at what do we see in the plant? How does that go back to the live animal management-wise? Because E. coli can be really challenging because we don't see sickness in cattle. Exactly. Uh, you know, even the, the ones... We call them the big seven, uh, Shigatakogenic E. coli. They're the ones that are regulated. Uh, they cause severe human illness, but they don't cause any illness in, in cattle or deer or whatever. And so it, it poses a very significant challenge. The other thing with these uh, Shigatakogenic E. coli is typically they require a very low dose to cause that illness in humans. And so... You know, I, I guess this is as simple as you can make it, but there's a lot of truth to this. The more you carry in of a pathogen, the more you carry in to a meat processing facility, either on the hide or in the GI tract or whatever, and also the more num number of animals that are carrying that contamination, the harder it is to control it using the interventions that I validate. And so... You know, the, the, the rule of thumb is try to eliminate or reduce as much in the live animal as possible so that you don't overwhelm your processing interventions. And, you know, I, I think that we've got mountains of data by this time that proves that to be a true story. Now, you know, uh, you, you never want to get too comfortable with things, though, Brad, because, uh, you know, now we know that uh, salmonella, which is you know, the big target in meat and, and poultry and eggs and almost every food group now, uh, the government is refocusing on salmonella. And with salmonella, the animals can actually, you can, you can do perfect in terms of dressing and dehiding or whatever, but uh, pigs and cattle can carry it in the lymph nodes. And so you don't get rid of it with your carcass washing and all of that. So that's kind of the issue that we're facing right now is what is the, the real impact of animals carrying uh, salmonella in their lymph system? And then how do we control that during meat processing? Because, yeah, you can cut out the lymph nodes during, but it's a massive hassle and very difficult uh, process when you're on a commercial setting. Well, and that's the other thing you, you mentioned with any of these interventions, and, and you touched on it a little bit, but they have to go in at processing speed. Yeah. They can't, you can't have something that takes a long time, even if it's really effective, because then we're not able to process the animals at the rate we need to. But there's a balance because it has to, it has to be long enough to be effective, right. but which leads 
new innovation. So it's it's a good yeah. uh, job for you because it sounds like there's we're not going to get rid of all the challenges, or we haven't yet thus far. Well, I, I always tell everybody, and I've been doing this for 40 years now, if you go back to my grad school days, is uh, it is a zero-sum game to try to come out and say that you're going to eliminate risk. I don't care what kind of risk you're talking about. There's going to be some level of risk, and it, it it's always going to be there. You just have to, first of all, try to reduce it as much as possible. The first thing you got to do is understand the risk. You know, understand what impacts it versus what, uh, you know, is going to spread whatever or, you know, so it's, you know, I, I could be working another hundred years and would never generate all the answers to E. coli and salmonella, right? But we can continually understand and reduce the risk so that it becomes more and more, um, or I should say less and less impactful on public health. That's, that's the goal. And, uh, you know, salmonella is the new, you know, shining star uh, because we've done a good job with E. coli. If you look at numbers, uh, the, the, especially in beef, uh, we've really taken it to a very low level. But salmonella, we haven't made much progress in any of the food groups uh, in the last 20 years. We're ba basically at the same level we were. So government realizes that, CDC realizes that, and in the Healthy People 2030 documents, it's very clear what they're going to concentrate on, and that being salmonella. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what you guys come up with in that area, and it's been very interesting to visit with you today. It's time for our famous three. We have a time and labor-saving product for you. Beef and Dairy Agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy Agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year, and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting, and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. But before we leave, Randy, I've got a couple questions for you okay. that are maybe a little bit not on the food science side, but they're about you, and a lot of our listeners are uh, wanting to be more and more successful in the industry. And first question is, what is your favorite beef-related book or resource? Well, you know, that we're in the times now. Everything's online, right? And so I like to keep up with what's really going on in the industry because that dictates what my next targets are going to be. So there's two publications that I pay a tremendous amount of uh, attention to all online. One is Drovers, the magazine Drovers, and the other is Meat and Poultry which is, you know, also an industry trade. So those are really important sources for me. And, and the other would be things coming out of the, uh, BIFSCO, we call it, uh, which is the Beef Industry Food Safety Council. They do so much. And the people who put those guidance documents together are those vice president, director level people that do it every day and know the real issues. So... You know, if, if I'm going to do things in an applied research manner, I've got to know what the industry knows. And that's where I, other than my direct communications with them, that's where I, I get a bunch of my stuff. Yeah. So keep it, keeping up kind of across the board on the, on the big issues. Yeah. What about outside of ag? What's your, what's your favorite uh, book or 
resource outside of ag. <laughs> well, you're going to kind of catch the nerd in me, I guess. But uh, I, uh, you know, I, I deal with ag and food, but I have the most interest in public health. That's that's kind of my area. So this morning I was reading uh, new publications about uh, Alzheimer's disease and, you know, things like that, because you never know where the crossover to your discipline is going to be. And so, you know, what's going, I always laugh because uh, if you look at what happens in the area of food and particularly food safety, you can always look two years previous at what was going on in medical microbiology. And then two years later, we're doing it in food. So we've got that delay, you know. So I always try to, to stay abreast and attuned to what's going on in the public health medical sector. And now, just because everything is so technology driven, I've, I'm even reading engineering magazines and stuff to, you know, try cold plasma and pulse light and all of these things, you know, deep UV light and things. They've got food applications. It's just who's going to take them and develop them, you know. Right now, I'm doing a project on nanobubbles. And, you know, we could spend a day talking about nanobubbles, which was used in sludge uh, processing and waste, uh, you know, municipal waste. Well, they got some great applications in food science. And so it, that's what keeps me young. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's the, the curiosity is, is invaluable, yeah. especially if you look at it. And, well, this could help me. I'm reading outside of my discipline, but this could help yeah. me. I love, love those answers. Yeah. If we if we were talking to a beef professional that's early in their career and we wanted to tell them, OK, this is what sets apart a successful beef professional from one that's maybe not as successful. What one or two traits would you tell? Oh, yeah. You know, this is probably the most important thing, particularly in my career as a, a professor, is developing the next generation of food science and food safety professionals. That, that is item number one on my agenda at this point in time. And I always tell my students that it all comes from the curiosity factor. You've got to want to know new things and you've got to, you can't passively do it. You've got to aggressively seek out that knowledge. It doesn't matter if it's going and talking to somebody over, you know, in another discipline over coffee or if it's uh, going to an annual meeting or something and straying outside of your comfort zone to talk to people doing new things. And so, you know, I try to teach that in my class, but I really try to teach it to my own graduate students and, and the other graduate students at K-State. And always, you know, the, the most important thing is to get them in the real life settings, get them in feed yards and get them in, you know, uh, processing facilities because you can teach all you want to out of a book. If you can't really see what what's happening and kind of feel it, it ain't going to ever really register with you, in my opinion. No, I think you're right. And, and having, maintaining, growing that curiosity is a great way to go to the next step. So we've enjoyed yeah. having Dr. Randy Phoebus on today's show. And Thanks for, thanks for making the time. And if you have further topics or people that you'd like us to talk about, you can reach out to us and give us some ideas. Thanks, yeah. Randy. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business. 